Welcome to the Writer Dojo with your hosts, Steve Diamond. Welcome back. And Larry Correa. I've killed women and children. I've killed everything that walks or crawls at one time or another. And I'm here to kill you, little Bill, for what you've done to Ned. Today's episode, Supporter Spectacular, Round 7. Welcome back to the Rider Dojo, everybody. Glad to have you back with us. How you doing, Larry? Feeling all right? Well, anytime I can quote uh, Unforgiven, I'm good yeah. to go. Yeah. I mean, good, good stuff right there. Okay, guys, today's a fun day. Uh, it's been a little while since we've done a Q&A. So we're going to hit you up with a bunch of questions. We're going to go through these a little quick. Um, as I was looking through kind of the emails of things, I, I found a few older questions that I just missed. Um, my, our inboxes get full. Sorry. Uh, we've talked about this before. If we don't get to your question right away, it's not personal. It's usually just, you know, user error <laughs> on my part. <laughs> well, plus we really are AMA. I mean, we will, you can ask us anything. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and some of these questions are very AMA. Okay. Some are weird. <laughs> yeah. All right. First one. This is from Brandon. He says, I've been kicking around the idea of starting a publishing house uh, for those writers who lean in a rightward fashion. Can you offer any tips or tricks on what hurdles I need to cross in order to get this project off the ground. Thanks in advance. Pretty large question. That's a really big question. Now, the first thing I would say is, what's the what's the name of the publishing house that's publishing uh, in defense of the Second Amendment? Regnery. Regnery. Now, the main dude over there, by the name of Tony Daniels, uh, awesome guy. Awesome guy. Freaking awesome. He was a main he was a main bro over at at Bain. Um, we, Larry and I love that guy to death. Uh, he's kind of the big deal over there, and that's they kind of lean in that direction. I'd say. Oh yeah, yeah. They they do <laughs> they do nonfiction political stuff, and they actually will hit all the conservative topics. It, it might be worth, uh, Brandon. It might be worth you reading into them and seeing what kind of stuff they have. And uh, you know, maybe what we can do is maybe we can get Tony on. I would love to have Tony as a guest. Yeah, that would be fantastic to talk nonfiction, especially because it's not a topic we're experts on. You know, okay, so my question on this is, that's so broad because I don't know what your background is in business. Well, and he says publishing house. I yeah. don't know if he means nonfiction or fiction. I'm assuming fiction. Well, there's nonfiction or fiction, but let's assume fiction because that's what we do know. But then how much do you actually know about publishing? Yeah. The publishing industry? Uh, distribution? Which is huge. Because, guys, there's a ton of tiny fly-by-night presses out there. Yeah. Um, and... There, we've talked about on the show before. Some good, some bad. Now, mostly bad, but mostly some bad. some good ones. That said, so honestly, this is so broad. Uh, you need a business background. You need an understanding of this in this particular industry. What do you bring to the table that makes it worth it for these authors to sign a contract with you for you to distribute their books? And then, can you distribute their books? Do you know how? Yeah. Can you market them? Yeah. Can you edit them? Uh, when, when I think about a lot of the smaller publishers that start up, uh, like I'm thinking of of Wordfire Press, right? Now, they're not right or left-leaning. Um, Kevin himself is left-leaning, but his publishing house is is ambivalent. Well, and Kevin's not obnoxious about it. No, well, Kevin Kevin's all about the Benjamins. <laughs> yeah, Kevin's um, a businessman. Because he's, he's a smart guy, and I love Kevin. Uh, but... He was able to do this. He was able to start that publishing house because 
He's written more books than basically our entire listenership combined. Well, in 40 years of experience. He's made so many connections. He knows so many people that he was able to, to do this, right? Uh, when for me doing the specialty press stuff, that's because, I mean, I've been around, I've been in bookstores, I've sold books. I know authors, uh, you know, I, I've reviewed for every, for every publishing house in America, basically every top publishing house yeah. in America. So there were connections involved. So I think the question you need to ask yourself isn't it, one of part of it is, well, why, why do you want to do this? Hmm. And then do you actually have the means to get it off the ground? And like you said, what do you have? What do you bring to the table that can, uh, I don't know, fit into a niche within the marketplace? Yeah, because it's one thing because anybody can hang out their shingle and say, I'm a publishing house. Yeah, and, and I've, they do. I, and they do. And I've dealt with some and they're like, honestly, just worse than useless. So the big thing is, do you have a business plan? Do you have the capital? Yeah. Uh, because another thing too is like, and what are you offering these authors to get them to sign up with you? And if you can come up with an actual business plan that says, I offer the following for you benefits and it behooves you to team up with me and me give you a contract, uh, then now you're talking. And yeah. then you have the capital to pull it off. Do you have the resources? Do you have the no the business knowledge? Yeah, um, I, I, think, I think the biggest part here, he says, any uh, tips or tricks or her, um, on what hurdles I need to cross in order to get the project off the ground? Um, Money. I, I, think, I think the main thing here is in this part, it's less about that you're starting a publishing house and it's more, you're starting a business. Yeah. And there, and so whatever hurdles you need to overcome to start a business, look at those. Money and knowledge are the two big ones there. Money, knowledge, and personnel. Yep. Money, knowledge, and personnel. And me and Steve have seen them come and go. Oh yeah. And then on the publishing house particularly thing, and then it's going to be in like your personal expertise and what you have to offer. Okay. All right. Now, I know that's a little bit of a fast answer to you, Brandon. We'll, we'll hit that again later, probably with someone who's actually, you know. We do have a couple of people in mind that we want to bring yeah. in uh, who have their own publishing houses that, that I would like to bring in as guests here pretty soon. Yeah. Speaking of which, we're uh, working on that. We are actually purchasing some equipment right yeah, now. Th thanks to, the, to our Writer Dojo supporters out there who have, I mean, you guys are awesome. You've graciously donated money to us. Um, you know, a good chunk of that, um, not going to lie, goes towards keeping us caffeinated and hydrated during these episodes. Uh, but the other part of it, um, we are spending your money on uh, the money that you've given us on equipment. Well, because we use Craig's studio most of the time, but we also have some new stuff that we will, next time we take this show on the road, it should sound a whole lot better. Yeah, yeah. And we're planning on doing that like fully on legit uh, Liberty Con in June. Yeah, that should be a lot of fun. All right. This is a, uh, this is. I have like three really, really specific questions. Okay. Okay. Uh, two of them are for you. One of them's for me. Okay. First one. Uh, and this is from Ramon Santos. He says, after reading Saga of the Forgotten Warrior, awesome books, the, uh, and let's see, I got to make sure I pronounce this right later. I'm sorry. Uh, and Groovedal mm -hmm. shatters, right? Says a shard is embedded in Ashok's heart. Was this planned in the outline as a deus ex uh, machina for future events? 
Or did you already plan for the scene where the shard mends his heart after he's impaled? There's a little bit of spoilery in here. Mm -hmm. But, so... Yes, Curious. actually, that was part of the out, outline originally. The the healing part. Oh uh, yeah. Well, okay. then plus, if you notice, like, what, what was one? Because Ashok has like a great many names, mm -hmm. nicknames, but one of them is Blackheart, the Blackhearted Ashok, and it all comes from how many people he's killed, and how many horrible things he's done on behalf of the law. Uh, but yes, as, and I remember Steve when you read that scene in the original thing, and you go, "Oh my gosh, it's Fantasy Iron Man." Yes. And I was like, "Yes, actually." Yes. Um, and so no, I did that on purpose. That was. Um, <laughs> So the whole nickname, the Blackheart, because I was something I want to actually make literal. And yeah. also, if you get further into the series, uh, no spoilers, but uh, you get further into the series, you see just how much it's changed him. Especially for those of you that haven't read book four yet. Uh, but the it comes ER, out in April, right? It comes out in April, yeah. but the uh, actually, so yeah. Well, the E arc's uh, out. People have people have read it. Yeah, so the E arc is out. So those of you that read the E arc, you know that yeah, no, I set that up. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's very interesting. Um, I think one of the big things that happens, there are so many readers, especially readers who have, um, uh, who are very attuned to looking or have like a critical mindset. And I don't mean that in a negative way. They have this critical mindset. And when they see things that appear to be do sex, where they're like, oh, well, that's awfully convenient. You know, they, a lot of readers are kind of highly tuned and they kind of, they kind of look for that. Mm-hmm. But in a series, in a in a in a in a long running series like Forgotten Warrior, say MHI or, or whatever. Oh, I used Deus Ex Machina in Monster Hunter on purpose. On purpose. Yeah. Yep. I hung a lampshade on it too. But a lot of times it looks like it's this whole God in the machine thing. It's this this matter of convenience. When it's not. It's just we haven't got to the part where there's the payoff for it. To show what you planned for. Hard yet. magic. When I had somebody who's like, well, I didn't like how Faye seemed to get stronger whenever the plot required it. And it wasn't until Spellbound, that same reviewer came back and goes, oh, she got stronger every time a lot of people died near her. And I was yeah. like, bingo. Correct. Yep. All right. Uh, Ramon also asks, where can I buy the short story about the giant robot that stalks a girl that lives inside of him? That's for me. Okay. That's my story. Uh integration that's what that one that one's called i wrote that for an anthology called mech age of steel for a publisher that will not be named anymore because i don't like them um and they don't exist and they screwed me but uh, i took that story and i put it in my anthology what hellhounds dream and other stories so it's it's just one of the the stories in that collection and it's awesome and it's I, available on Amazon. Yep, all on Amazon or hey i have like 80 copies of it at home ping me and i'll i'll send you a you know, pay me, well, and pay me and I'll send you a, <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll send you a personalized autograph copy. Okay. This one's for you, Larry. This one's very important. Okay. Um, this is from Mitchell. Given the success uh, of Servants of War, can we expect a Monster Hunter memoirs co-written by Steve? Oh, gosh. Um, I think this is a very important question, Larry. That's a great question. There is no plans currently at this time. <laughs> That's what I'll say. That said, Pete, Steve has been pitching and twitchy, twisting my arm for a couple of years now to do combat exorcists. Yeah. Uh, now I have, I have written, I have written in Monster Hunter. Oh yeah, you have. You've you know, written. I wrote, I wrote a combat exorcist story mm -hmm. uh, for Monster Hunter Files. Uh, and that story has been pretty well received, I think. Uh, and, and we've talked, we've talked 
more than a few times yeah. about different stuff. It should, frankly, it's it's a matter of timing. Well, and two really busy guys. And yeah. also, because uh, I can only do one set of memoirs at a time. Yeah. Or one memoir at a time. While I, I mean, I have to interspace them with the regular series books. Mm-hmm. And I've currently got one coming up from in October from Jason Cordova. Right. And I got another one coming up after that with Les Johnson. Yeah. Um, and so the thing about the monster, I remember, maybe someday I'm not disregarding. Plus, I no. also have something else I write with Steve anyway. Yeah. I mean, we're, <laughs> we're, we're a smidge busy doing servants, um, you know, and, and that series is awesome. So we'll, you know, what, once that series is done, we'll talk, but, um, Yeah, we got to, we got to knock out some I mean, of the have, Age of Ravens first. Yeah. And, and we have another, we have another little project that we've talked Which about before. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, I like but, to do that too. So. But that one, I mean, we, we can't even we can't even sniff that one until until Servants is done. Yeah, so basic order of operations, I'm not taking it off the table, total possibility. Yeah. Well, and, and then there's also the fact that anything that gets pitched to you in terms of Monster Hunter, you have to vet it pretty hard. Dude, I have so many people. I have, I have and I'm not, I'm not joking, 25 excellent writers yes. that would love to write a Monster Hunter novel tomorrow. Well, any, any and every author should want to, right? Yeah, I got, and I, I get mean, the thing is, I got about two dozen people that are like good writers, yeah, who know the universe and mm. love it and would like to write a story for it. And I that that I can't do. All right, let's see. A few weeks back, someone asked for help creating an analogy on the on the Facebook group. Creating analogies is something I find very challenging. Do you have any advice for how to get better at this skill? Oh, wow. I don't know that I have like specific advice for this, Larry. I think, I think part of it just comes down to how often are you practicing the skill? Okay. So I am, this is not something I'm good at. Uh, and so honestly, when I've needed to create one for a book, it's, Either it's something I've had time to think about rather than come up on the fly. I have no specific advice to give on that because it's not something that comes naturally to me. I've been writing a lot of noir lately between Werewolf Cop and, um, and this other, this other little story I'm doing for, uh, for Law Dog. But, um, in noir fiction and in, in detective fiction, a lot of analogies are used. Tons and tons of analogies are used when you're, when you're talking well, you, about the they, way the cities are, the way the peoples speak, are. They the f- speak in similes. They do. And so... This is like this. This is mm-hmm. like this, you know? Um, and so perhaps read some some detective fiction. And what that'll do is that'll that'll get you into a mindset where people are looking at things through a very different lens than what you're used to. Now, and of course, I will also say that the types of analogies that are used probably largely depend on what your character is. Yeah. I, I think probably my biggest thing is I probably write characters that aren't, uh, you know, alleg- allegorically flowery. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's see. Here. Let's see. I'm, I'm going to do one more question and then I think we'll go to a break. Okay. How do, uh, this is from Arthur. How do you know if or how much an event helps your online sales? He says, I realize it's impossible to quantify the impact exactly, but some ideas about general, about general projection would be helpful in planning which events to attend. 
Is there a book or reference resource you recommend for writers learning to be their own business managers? He says he hasn't. He says I have an accountant, uh, and I can run my own household budget, but I like to know more. Um, enough to ask intelligent questions and not make stupid, expensive mistakes. So there's there's a little bit to unpack here. First of all, how do we know? Is there any way for us to tell well, what kind of impact going to events has? Well, it depends on how you sell. Um, if you sell direct, like you have a table there, clearly you are going to have, I sold X number of copies. That's obvious. If and we, you're and like, we've seen that a lot from events that we've attended. Yeah. Or if you're doing the, if you're independent and you are selling on Amazon or you know, KU or whatever, then immediately you can say, okay, I sold X number of copies this week as opposed to a normal week. You know, uh, trade, uh, not so much. Now, how much you've been, you've been doing the, the traditional publishing far longer than I have, Larry. Yeah. Uh, especially with Bain. How much information does a trad pub typically give you in terms of quantities of sale? Um, very little, honestly. And like, I actually get more than most just cause I, I know the accountant there and I hound her. I bug her all the time when I have questions. So like, Hey, how's this looking there? How's this? Thing? And plus I'm a finance guy at heart as you yeah. are. And so I, I will, I will go bug Marla and ask her questions. Um, apparently I've asked, I like, I'm, I'm way more involved in that than most of her writers. Um, the thing is though, guys, it's really, really hard to get a direct correlation. And I know I've seen this like with dozens and dozens of authors where they'll spend some money on something like some Facebook ads or whatever, and have no flipping idea if it was worth the return on investment. Some do. If you listen to like, if you read anything written by like Michael Rothman, he's mm -hmm. super analytical. Um, very, if very. you know the guy, he is an incredibly analytical man and he has it down to a science. Uh, where if I, you know, I spend X number of dollars on this kind of ad, I hope to get X number, you know, Y return, so yeah. on and so forth. Um, honestly, it just depends on how you sell and how granular the, granular the reporting data is for that. Now, if you're a trad guy and you're just looking at book scan, it's almost always noise, especially because most of like, like say I just did my um, release of my gun book, right? And I did like 40 radio interviews. I got back my book scan numbers and my release week numbers and my audible and my uh, ebook numbers, you know, for that first opening period, right? And I saw, I sold really good. It was a hit, did extremely good. How much of that came from each event I did? I don't know. So I went on um, a big radio show. Did that, how many sales did I get off that versus how many did I get off this other podcast or how many did I get off this, this talk I gave or this article I wrote? Uh, I don't know. Because it's just a great big lump all in that release week. You know, I, um, towards the tail end of 2022, I was on a lot of shows uh, talking. Of, I mean, everyone, everyone wanted the horror guy during, yeah. you know, well, going yeah, into you're, Halloween. You, you, you're pretty good on the radio too. I'm, so. I'm, I've done, I, you know, I'm, I'm okay being interviewed. Um, I was in, in one of the shows in December, I was on, I was on rogues in the house, which, you, you know, I love those guys. And so this funny thing happened in general, I have zero idea if anyone ever finds me, finds us in, in this case, servants of war through these, through these radio shows. I have no idea. It's kind of a, you know, hope and pray sort of thing. It's like, well, I don't mind being on the show chatting with these guys. So I'll do it. It's fun. I love those guys. And hopefully some sales come out of it. Right. Uh, I was, I was doom scrolling on YouTube the other night just 
here we go. Let's see what happens. I was, I, I was looking at all this random stuff like, you know, uh, sports talk because I love sports and, you know, music, whatever. I'm always looking for a new band. And I'm just scrolling and I come across a booktuber that was reviewing Servants of War. And just out of nowhere, I'm like, oh, well, this is interesting. So I click on it to see what the guy says, you know, crossing my fingers that he's not like, man, Larry and Steve suck. Uh, and the, the guy was super positive about it, but he said, uh, one of the things he said was, oh, yeah, I, I found this book after Steve showed up on the Rogues in the House podcast. Oh, cool. And I'm like, okay. Now that's one. Right. Okay. May, maybe that doesn't mean that much. But to me, that one guy, him being positive about it and the fact that he saw it, it meant something to me. Yeah. Uh, and again, at, at my stage in the career, I'm, I'm grateful for, you know, one person finding me from from some interview somewhere well, but plus, i can't quantify it plus the other thing too is you don't know if they're going to necessarily buy it right that instant so that yeah. like you if you do a show or are they even going to watch that show that same week you did it mm-hmm. that's another thing too so maybe the guy watched the podcast a week after two weeks three weeks after it came out and a then bought later. the book yeah, who, who knows, knows? Uh, it gets so hard. It's so hard to tell on a lot of the stuff. Plus, what we've known for like the psychology of advertising studies, there's a reason that Coke and Pepsi just advertise continually. Everybody in the world has heard of Coke, but Coke still buys ads. Why? Because every six or seven times you're reminded of it, you want to go purchase it. Right. It's not every time. So the more you get your name out there, the more return you're going to get. But then again, you know, how do you yeah. quantify this stuff? It's going to depend on your data. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break and come back. More questions, baby. Hey everyone, producer Jack here. This week's episode, we're looking at the second of Author Media's Ten Commandments for Writers. Commandment number two, thou shalt write for thy reader, not for thyself. The difference between a book and a journal is the audience. You write a journal for yourself, you write a book to thrill your reader. Only a few authors are genuinely willing to write for their readers and murder the fluff. You'll find these writers on the bestseller list. They tend to work with multiple editors to make sure every paragraph has a purpose. To learn more, head on over to AuthorMedia.com. AuthorMedia is a family business that helps authors learn how to build a platform, sell more books, and change the world with writing worth talking about. Learn more on their website linked in the show notes or by listening to their podcast, Novel Marketing. Check it out today. Welcome back. All right, Larry. More questions. We've got some good ones here. All right. From Dave. He says, when it comes to intellectual property, what are the pros and cons of having an iron fist control versus loosey-goosey? How important is it that your name go on every book produced in your world? Oh, my gosh. If it's produced in your world, it's your mine. name better be on yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. So I'd, uh, maybe, I, maybe there's part of this equation that I'm missing. But I can't imagine why you would go loosey-goosey with your intellectual property. I mean, think Tom Clancy, right? Um, his, name is on, his name is on every book that has anything even tangentially related to some, the property. And some of those are terrible, but that's and not that really- And that dude's a, dead. Yeah, and that's not really a question of like, like, like how you should hold it, because some of those people they picked to write those books from are awful. Oh, yeah. But like if someone's writing Monster Hunter- I'm in, I'm in control. Your name better be on it. Yeah, it's mine. That's yeah. my baby. If anybody writes any of my IPs, so for me that I I don't understand loosey goosey. 
No. I, I wouldn't go. Because the, the loosey-goosier you go, the more bad stuff that you don't approve is going to wind up in it, the more people are going to read that and associate your IP and your mm-hmm. brand is going to be associated with crap. Yep. I mean, I, I remember, gosh, I remember when I was writing uh, that story called The Gift for the Monster Hunter Files. And on the read through, it, it had nothing to do, like a lot of it had nothing to do with the, with the storytelling within the story. Cause that, that was fine. It was more of, I remember during the whole process, your, your opinion or your, your point, your position, I guess I should say was, okay, well, whatever you do, I have to make sure that it fits in Canon. That's the hardest part about editing a Monster Hunter Files thing is not the actual editorial because I had great storytellers in there. And that is one of the best-selling anthologies of all time now. Yeah. Uh, it's still, I got another check for you. Sweet. Like it's still, it's still paying out. It's eight years later. It's fantastic. Um, but the thing is, every single thing in there has to fit in canon or it has to have an explanation as to why it doesn't. Yeah. Unreliable narrator, that kind of thing. Somebody mm-hmm. just got something wrong. That does happen. Oftentimes that, that got wrong because I, as the editor, missed it. Yeah. Because once you get like 12, 12 books into a series, it's really easy to forget you said something once. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, I, I remember when you were writing the story for Alien. Oh, my and gosh. I put so much work into that to make sure I got it right. And the thing that killed me was that every the, the canon for Aliens... It's uh, all over the place. Well, it contradicts itself. It doesn't make any sense because each time there'd be a new director... Uh, uh, of a new movie, they would just throw out whatever they felt like and come up with whatever new thing they wanted yeah. that didn't make any sense. I mean, there's no true, like, brainchild IP canon holder, I guess I should say, for that. It's it's a company that owns the IP, Yeah, right? I think it's Fox or whatever. Uh, in that sort of scenario, there, there's not one person who can who can unify it and kind of have more or less the iron fist on it. Now, Iron Fist sounds, I don't know that Iron Fist control is the right word for it. I just think it's, it's more of like a good handle um, and a good direction for it. No, I, I mean, you worked with, I think there's like, I don't know, 13 stories or something like that in Monster Hunter Files, maybe 15. 17. Is it 17? Yep. Good night. Um, I just know that I wrote the checks this week. Right. Yeah. yeah. So... All those people, they have their own creative design. They have their own their own voice. And so, uh, and I remember this when we were working with with the War Machine guys. There was a lot of there was a lot of places where they had they had such tight iron fist control over things that it stamped out any potential for creativity. It did, yeah. But I, I don't I don't think that's what what Dave's talking about here. Um. I I think it's it's I think it's more important that someone like you or whoever it is who who owns the IP that they have control and they ultimately direct in terms of and make sure that it fits within the confines of whatever this world is. Yeah, because there's some big series out there that are a little more open that I'm not going to name any names because I like some of the people involved where the original books I liked, but then the later books as it got wider and wider and wider and the original guy. The original creator had less and less say. Yeah. The worse they got. Yep. Okay. Uh, 
What detective police procedures do writers get right and which ones do they get wrong? That's interesting. I think it's going to depend on the writer. I think so. Uh, the one that I see most often wrong is, <laughs> it, I mean, it's it's really simple stuff. It's it's that officers are constantly involved in like all these shootings, you know, and that it's cool. Raylan Givens would still be doing paperwork. To this oh day. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and, and they even they do make that joke within the within the ser- series. Yeah. They're like, you know. Every, t- he's like, every time he shoots someone, he, there's all this paperwork involved, you know? Um, he shoots like 100 people during the course of the show, too, you know? It might be. I mean, he gets in a bunch of gunfights, well, like least, those it, mass gunfights. It's at least like 30. He shoots oh, like yeah. at least two dozen people on this show. Um, the show Bosch does a pretty decent job of handling what what it means to be involved in a shooting. Wasn't that what your dad said Bosch was actually one of the closer police shows that he's seen? Oh, uh, he hasn't seen Bosch. Oh, he hasn't? No, he hasn't. Oh, maybe um, somebody else's. Yeah, the, the thing was- Steve's dad's- uh, Steve's Yeah, dad's, my, uh, my, you got to understand, my dad, um, my dad was career cop. Yeah. Like career cop. Everything from beat cop to um, all the way up to being the chief of police in two different cities. And the, that's one of the biggest things. It's, it's the, the complete fundamental misunderstanding of use of force- and then the other one is how fast things can be analyzed by the labs. It's, it doesn't happen. I mean, it's like, oh yeah, I sent it in last night and here it is. No, no, You're, it's going to be weeks. Yeah, I was going to say, unless the mayor got murdered, I don't think they're going to bump it up that much, you know? <laughs> um, I visited an evidence warehouse in Sacramento and it's massive. I mean, we're talking, there's a room for guns, there's a room for drugs, there's an entire warehouse for like the random odds and ends, you know, couches, TVs, cars, all that stuff. At the end caps were barrels of like improvised weapons, like bats with nails in them. Yeah, I got to see uh, the Utah Crime Lab. Same okay. thing, I got to go in the room with like 5,000 guns in it. And it was oh, like dude, there was a, su- dude, there was a Tommy super gun. Super cool. There was a Tommy gun, a legit Thompson on the wall in there and it was going to get melted. Oh. Uh, so sad. Oh, that is the saddest thing ever. And then there's the, and He's, then there's the cold be liberated. Room. If I worked there, it would like, it would just like fall off, oh, a, no. fall off a truck. <laughs> uh, that's why I don't work at a crime lab. Right. Uh, and then there's the cold room and that's where the biologic, biological stuff is. Yep. So, you know, blood samples and appendages, right? It takes a long time. It takes a long time to analyze things. I think that's one of the biggest things. It's, it's use of force is generally messed up uh oh and and then uh, i was writing uh, when i was writing werewolf cop i was talking to my dad about this um very often you see in these shows where the cop gets suspended and then they keep going out and doing things the instant you're suspended you are you no longer have any police keeping or peacekeeping um any functions allowed to you you're a civilian if you do something you'll be you can be prosecuted just like a civilian at that point so it's, there's a lot of weird little things like that, but TV's TV. They do all this for yeah. drama. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Luther, but I am pretty sure Luther is not a realistic portrayal of policing in Britain. <laughs> no freaking way, dude. <laughs> I just started rewatching the, rewatching the series and there's no way, dude. No. Um, he, he literally breaks every rule within the first like 10 minutes of but the show. It's, it's cause he's, uh, he's a little bent, but he's not crooked. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a, no, he, said, he or, says, I might be a little dirty, but I'm not crooked. A little dirty, but not crooked. Yeah. Getting swept into the zone is so, is so fulfilling, but life requirements and responsibilities always come to interrupt it. Very true. I find it nearly impossible to return to that flow later. Do you have any methods that help you get back into the zone when you're able to get back to button chair hands on keyboard? That's really interesting. Uh, I find this a lot. As soon as you get in that zone, you're just, dude, your fingers are on fire. Everything is coming easy. Uh, and then something happens. Maybe it's, and it might not even be like a life, like a, you know, like, like an interruption, so to speak. Maybe you just, it's 2 a.m. and you need to go to bed. Yeah, I don't have an easy way to get back to the zone because it's like that, that awesome Zen state where you can write like 5,000 words in a couple hours. Oh. Uh, I, I don't have an answer. To, if I could get into that on demand, that dude, would be fantastic. Dude, we'd, we'd have books out every other month. Yeah. Uh, I don't because I have four kids and life and stuff happens and, you know, I got a family and, and emergencies and then it snows three feet in one night. And I got to spend the day plowing, right? So it, this sounds awfully, this sounds awfully theor- like awfully recently. Right? Dude, my back is still sore from shoveling my plow out several times. No, the thing is, guys, I don't think there's, I don't think there's a uh, an easy answer to that. It's going to depend on your psychology. You know, back when I used to shoot competition, yeah, that Zen state, that flow state, where everything is just like boom, 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 and you just you just act without thought and you just hit everything because you know what you do. You've already trained yourself. That was the ideal you were always searching for when you're as a competitor, right? It's, it's very, yeah. I mean, it's very much that, that, that sports mentality where the game slows down for you, so to speak. Absolutely. Right. So how do you hit that for writing? It's the same way you do it for anything else. It's you're doing it. And the more you do it, the more likely you are to be, the more likely you are to get it. Now, like if there was a switch that could be flipped, Uh, like guys, even NFL is a switch that could be flipped. You'd be Brandon Sanderson, even NFL's. Well, and I don't think he has a switch. I think he's always on (laughs) as the key with Brandon. There's no switch. That's his secret. Yeah. That's his secret. He's always, he's always writing like the Hulk. (laughs) He's the Hulk of writing. No, but honestly, the guys, there's, there's NFL players who can't flip that switch on demand. No. You know, it, so it's, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, even the best of the best, let's say Michael Jordan, dude had off games. Oh Yeah. I mean, less than most people. Yeah, but, but he still, still had him. Yeah, it, yeah. There, I don't think there's an easy answer for that. That's what separates separates the really prolific masters from yeah. everybody else. Right. Now this kind of relates. Um, he says he really enjoys discovery writing, but for me, it seems ideal when he's doing short stories. Problem is, when he has a goal of writing a novel that's say hundred thousand words, he finds that discovery writes him discovery writing takes them all different places. Do you have a process for staying on track with a longer storyline while still using the discovery writing process? That's a question for you, Steve. Yeah. Um, as far as short stories goes, I completely agree. Uh, and, and you do this too with short fiction. Yeah. It's short fiction. You just go. Fire. I just go, you yeah. know, um, it, as we were talking about the last part where you're getting in the flow of things, I, I feel like People who outline, it's a little easier for them to get into the flow because they already know what that scene is. For me, when I discovery write, it's a lot of it comes down to excitement. It comes down to how, how in, um, like how much passion I have for that story or how, uh, how much mind space it's taking up. So I, I, you know, I wrote this this little like fantasy crime novella a little bit ago. 
Uh, I wrote, it was a 20 case story. I wrote it in a week. Okay. Pure discovery written. Why? Well, because I was excited about it. I knew the characters. Um, the better I know the characters, the easier it is for me to get into what he was talking about before, a flow state, right? Uh, but for discovery writing, it's if you overthink discovery writing and all you're doing is all you're doing is constantly worrying about where you're going to be going next, then it's very much more likely that you're going to get bogged down and in your own head. Now, there's an argument to be made about outlining versus discovery writing that if you're an outliner, I can make the argument that, well, in your outline, you're just discovery writing your story in your outline. And if you're a discovery writer, the, the easy argument is to say, oh, well, yeah, but you're, as you're writing, you're, you're outlining this in your head as you go along, right? And I think both of those are completely valid. And I actually agree. The more... The more you think about your story as a discovery writer, uh, you know, say you write, you write a chunk in the day and then overnight you're thinking about it. The next morning you're thinking about it. By the time you get back to writing, you're, you're thinking about it some more. It's a lot easier for you to get into the groove because your brain has been problem solving and it's, it is going down the track. So there's no... There's no real process for staying on track with a longer story in discovery writing. It's just a matter of practice. And it's a matter of being involved in that story more. Like, think about it more. Um, have it dominate your thoughts more. Well, even if I was discovery, and I have, I have done some yeah. you know, discovery writing, but I think if I'm 50, 70,000 words into a story... By that point, I should have a pretty good handle know. on where everybody's going. And, yep. and, and, and even if I don't have an official outline, by that point, I've been so you know deep into the story for so long. How could I not really know where those characters are yeah. going? And if I don't know that, that means I probably don't know my characters good enough. And I probably need to go back and reread it and edit it as I go. Absolutely. Until I, and so if I need, you know, like I've done this before where I've been like 30,000 words into a story, but I'm like kind of lost. I'll go back and I'll reread the whole thing and edit it as I go. And then by the time I get to that 30,000 words, I'm ready to just scroll because yep. now I've refocused. Yep. I know where those characters are going. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. All right, let's see what else. What else do we got here? Ooh, I like this one. I like this one, Larry. And I think this will be our last question for the day. Uh, maybe one more. Okay, um, this is from Nick. He says, I recall Heinlein's rule to finish what you write. But are there ever a is there ever a point when one should shelve the project and move to another one? Hmm. I don't know. I would um, say, yeah, probably. I, I think, I think especially when you're a new writer, oftentimes, you, you know, you're writing a book or whatever, a story, um, and it just doesn't work. Sometimes that's your fault. Sometimes as you're, as you're new and you're going through the process of writing, you're learning how to do these things. I mean, a lot of times you're, you're learning how to just actually put words on paper in a way that makes sense. There can be times where, I mean, gosh, if you ask any author, I, I'm, I am willing to bet every single author has a couple projects that are midway through, their, through that story that they just shelved 
because the story didn't work. It wasn't interesting. Um, or, or maybe I wasn't in the mental headspace at the time to write that particular yeah. story. Um, I have that less now because I got more experience. Plus I have deadlines. Everything's under contract. So if I'm writing something, it's because somebody needs yeah. it from me. Yeah. If you're under contract, the answer to this question is no. Yeah. Yeah. If you're under contract, no, you need to get that out the door and you need to do what you need to do. However, there's been times when there's stuff that I don't have under contract that I'm just kind of fiddling around with and I'm like, okay, yeah, this is cool, but I don't really know what I'm doing with it or it doesn't feel right. Or, you know, there are times where I will like start something and then I'll come back to it later. Because then I'm in the right headspace to do it. Maybe I need to go do a different project first. Yeah. So I'd say, yeah, there's times to shelf stuff. Like I said, my very first novel never got published. Same with mine. Yeah, it wasn't that good. My first two, three. But but I've taken all the goods bits out and I've since cannibalized it and used all those good bits for other things yeah. that were good. Now, the one danger here that I will I will say is just because something gets hard for you to write... Uh, doesn't mean you should just say, oh, well, maybe I'm not in the right space. I should just give up. Oh, no, because it's always hard, guys. Yes. This What we do is hard. Uh, very few people do what we do continu- continuously. They might, Very few people can do what we do once. Yeah. And even fewer can do it all the time. Yep. And very, very few of us can do it on demand. Jeez. <sighs> Okay, okay, so so yeah, there's gonna be times where even even guys who we've done this 25 times, we're gonna shelve a project for a while, or maybe you start something, you're like, this just isn't fun, or this just isn't good. Uh, I was talking with uh, Rothman about this. Uh, he was writing a story, and he calls me up, and he's like, "Dude, this book just doesn't work." He's like, and he, and he said, "Look, I I know I can get to the end of it, I know I can write it, and I know it, and I know overall it'd probably be good." He said, but it's not what I want it to be. And I don't know that there's any legs for it after it's done. Yeah. And so he said, so from his point of view, it was a marketing, it was a marketing and longevity of series sort of thing. He's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. Yeah. So do you want to spend hundreds of hours finishing a project that you're not in love with? Or are you want to go spend those hundreds of hours doing something that you do want to do? Well, and something that in his case, or in say someone like you, I mean, something that can actually pay you money. Exactly. Right? Yeah. There's a few things out there where people are like, hey, Larry, you're going to write this. You're going to write this. And it's some weird thing. And the answer is no, because- yeah. Well, are, are you ever going to write the third book in the Malcontent series? Well, that one I can't. Correct. It's not, it's not, not my, I'm sure they would take one from me, but they can't afford me. Right. You know, so that's a decision I got to make that, you know, that's not, that's mm-hmm. not something financially I can, I could spend several months working on a project I'm not going to make yep. any money off of. It's, can, do you want to do this weird vanity project or write the next mainline Monster Hunter series? Every time I'm doing anything other than one of my main series books, I am losing money. Right. So I have to prioritize that. So, I mean, I have a lot of ideas for stuff that would probably be pretty cool, but yeah. I, I, there's one of me. Yeah. So far. <laughs> All Until right. the clones Very come last question, uh, and I like this one. Um, this is from, uh, his name is Shell. So he said, it's an observation tied to a question. He just started watching the show Lockwood & Co. on Netflix, uh, and I went and watched the show because I saw this question. And he says, in the opening scene, one of the characters might get killed, which is interesting. The stakes are high. He already likes the character and would prefer that the character, you know, doesn't bite the dust. He says, but I know nothing about the story. Um doesn't know anything about her, whatever. So as a new viewer, she could die. That's interesting. That's compelling, right? He says, question, aside from the Mary Sue issue, um, 
which becomes boring with low stakes. How does one continually put characters who have to survive in high-stakes situations which remain believable? Hmm. That's a great oh, question. Man. And the, I got, like you know, me, I've had the same main characters for eight books in one series now. Well, I mean, every every major series, I mean, think about the Dresden Files, right? Like that series is, is on 18 books now, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's supposed to be 23 or something. Well, I know his answer. Kill off supporting characters. Kill off everything. Kill off everybody. <laughs> so, so and, and, and that's what I want to point out here. So, so his question is, she could die. Okay. In fiction, and this is the, this is the George Martin trap where the worst thing that could happen to a character was they could die. So we killed them. I don't write that kind of fiction. I write, I write a lot of horror or I write fiction with a lot of horror elements. Yeah, where death is death, getting out lucky. Dude, death is death is maybe the most beneficial option to the character. Um, think about, uh, um, what's that show? Uh, Color Out of Space. Oh, gosh. When Nick Cage, right? Oh, so there's, man. So there's that, the dude. That movie is messed so up. So there's the dude who is like the Miskatonic U student. Yeah, the irrigation guy. Yeah, he yeah. comes in, and in the beginning, he's like, he's got his like, clean blue miskatonic you shirt on he's all happy yeah happy giving nice high guy. fives to everybody yeah, great guy and then happy. at the end oh yeah you can tell he's wrecked he's shaking he's smoking a cigarette he's got a thousand yard stare i mean he his ba- the bags under his eyes have bags under their eyes yeah you know what i mean and all those other people that die in the movie you're like at least they don't have to deal with it anymore nope he still does and so I, I think I think for you, Shell, that how do you avoid making the characters uh, become boring, or how do you keep putting them in high stakes situations which remain believable? A lot of it is just man putting them through the ringer and making their reactions to the situations yeah. believable. Make them hurt. Yeah. Wound them. Yeah. Uh, some characters, if you can kill a character, kill a character. I've killed a lot of characters. I killed a lot of characters. People thought, well, that character is going to make it to the end. Nope. Nope. Um, you know, the death of a side character who matters to the main character. Oh yeah. You know, yeah, the main character got through it, but their bro didn't. But what, yeah. And that's what a cost? big deal. That's a big deal. The psycho- psychological and emotional impact in these situations is massive. Yeah. Like who, like which of the kids is going to survive the last season of Stranger Things? Oh man. I wouldn't even place money on it because I bet you they're going to kill, I bet you they kill several of them. They best not kill Steve. That's the only one I care about. I think Steve should live and become the sheriff of Hawkins. That'd be dope. That'd be awesome. He should. He should be sheriff. They should totally kill, um, what's her name? What's the main chick's oh, name? No, no, no. I oh. don't care about her. Um, Steve's not girlfriend anymore. Oh, yeah. Um, they should totally kill her stoner kind of sort of boyfriend. That dude yeah, sucks. Yeah, he's, he's pretty useless. Um, but here's the, this is the thing. So that's a show. You got a bunch of main characters, right? Big cast. Who will live? They've already showed they'll kill- They'll kill anybody. They've yeah. killed a bunch. Yeah. So, like last season, I'm no one's safe, and everybody well, knows it. So, or um, or uh, ratchets up the tension. Or the the redhead girl that is she, in a coma now. Yeah, maybe dead, maybe and she not. She had the single most intense scene of the entire. She uh, had the awesomest scene. Well, her and unnamed FBI guy with the Beretta. Yeah. Well, and then <laughs> and then um, that guy was, and then the dude the dude playing Master of Puppets. Yeah, um, that guy was awesome. That dude was rad. Yeah, fat guy with a Beretta was, uh, I will say that was aspirational for me as a fat guy with a Beretta. That guy so, was awesome. Yeah. So my, my, our, our point here is, man, there are so many other things you can do to a character than kill them. 
um, you can hurt them in so many different ways that doesn't involve, well, they're in a grave now. Uh, and, and my recommendation is to look at like really good horror fiction for this or long-term successful series. Think, uh, you know, X-Files or, you know, Monster Hunter or Dresden or whatever. See how these characters keep getting put in awful situations and how they respond. Well, it's funny because me and Jim both have killed our main characters yeah. and then brought them back. Correct. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's the beauty of writing fantasy. Yeah. So. All right. That's all the time we have for you today for this Q&A. Um, we got to a lot of them. There's still a few left. We'll do another Q&A later. Don't worry. Um, but anyway, we're glad that you could join us. We, we really, really appreciate you guys uh, sending in all these questions. You guys ask awesome questions, very interesting questions. And again, if you have any others, feel free to email us. Again, as you can tell, we, we do answer the questions no matter how specific or important. Like, when is Steve going to write a Monster Hunter Memoirs? That's all the time we have for you today. We'll see you on the next one. Writer Dojo is Steve Diamond and Larry Correa. Produced by Jack Wilder and Bear and Hair Studios. Theme song, Word Mercenaries by Craig Naibo. New episodes come out every Wednesday wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm slash writer dojo, by leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on the Writer Dojo, email ads at writerdojo.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to questions at writerdojo.com. Man, Larry and Steve suck.